Queen's Lead Podcast. I'm your host, Amy Singleton. And as a child of the 80s, I'd love to say Queen's rule, but they don't. Queen's Lead. Being a queen means you are worthy to be a leader of people. The guests on our show do exactly that. They are leading the way in their businesses, families, and communities. They're taking their rightful place in the spotlight, leading and inspiring the developing queens in all of us. Welcome to the Queen's Lead Podcast. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Queen's Lead Podcast. Today, I am honored to be joined by guest Dr. Carolina Sueldo from Fresno, California, and she is a fertility specialist. And welcome, Dr. Carolina. Amy, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here today and looking forward to our discussion. Yeah, we were just talking before we popped on air, like this is so ironic that we got teamed up because I have a history in, in nursing and in medicine and also suffered from infertility issues. So this is such a timely, um, such a timely conversation. I know so many women deal with this husbands and women and men of, of all ages are going through this type of thing. So tell us about who you are and kind of how you oh, got sure. into this, <laughs> how you got into this specialty. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I am actually born and raised in Fresno, California, so ultimately made my way back here. Um, but at the age of 15, my family moved to Argentina, which is where my parents are originally from. So my path has been a little bit different um, than most people because I actually did high school. I did medical school there um, and have you know very strong ties. So all of my extended family, aunts, uncles, cousins, everybody still lives just outside of Buenos Aires, um, the capital. So wow. I came back to the States in 2008. Um, I did my OBGYN residency training. So for those that don't know, doctors have like a lot of years that they put in before they actually become a doctor. So you finished medical school, but you're really kind of just starting, right? So, right. <laughs> um, so I did my OB-GYN residency and then I did a three-year subspecialty in infertility. And I finished that in 2015. Um, and at the time I decided to move to Miami, Florida. I was a single young professional woman. Um, and, and Miami was great to me. I really, I have the fondest memories of, of being there. Um, I joined, you know, a very large established practice in the area and it was treated very well. Um, and at that, you know, while I was there, I met my husband. Um, we actually met, um, post hurricane Irma for those who are Oh. in 2017. Um, we were part of just a volunteer organization that went down to help the Keys with the rebuild and cleanup. Um, so we then as a unit decided to move back to my hometown where I joined my father um, and his partner, Michael. And uh, we've been here now for almost five years. Nice. What's the name of the practice? Women's Specialty and Fertility Centers. So we are technically the location is Clovis, California, but it's Fresno County. Um, for those that know Calif that don't know California, it's in the cent central part of the state. Okay. And tell us about um, who you serve and what you guys do. There. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's really interesting. Um, I, I was, uh, I have still to this day, a very strong personality. And so when I was in medical school, trying to decide what I wanted to do, I really, really, really wanted to carve my own path. I didn't want to be known as the daughter of um, both my parents are physicians. And I really wanted to steer clear um, of women's health because of my father. And yet <laughs> I really fell in love with it. Um, more so from a sort of 
female empowerment, reproductive rights, um, information standpoint. So in medical school, most of my girlfriends were not in medicine. Um, they were, you know, in law school and business school, whatever, you name it. They were, they were doing their studies and they would come to me because I was obviously the physician of the group because I was in medical school. And, you know, some of the most basic questions that I couldn't believe that people didn't know. And I was like, well, mm -hmm. if these, if this group of educated women don't know this, then imagine, you know, the non-medical or the non-educated person. So yes. it really, it really kind of um, sparked a fire uh, to sort of join OBGYN as far as from a women's health uh, movement standpoint. Mm. And then I was lucky enough during my residency years to be exposed to the IVF laboratory and what, what the embryologists do in the lab. And it truly, it truly is amazing. I, now I've been in practice now almost a decade. And even after all these years, like it doesn't cease to amaze me what they're able to do in the lab. So I mm. really, I fell in love with my field because of the science and, and sort of the advances. It's still a very young field if you look at the full history of medicine. Mm -hmm. um, and what we do changes practice. So every year studies are coming out that modify what we do, which to me, I find fascinating. It can't become just a job. It can't, you fell in love with it for the science. Um, you know, it's a young field. You have to stay up to date. You can't, it can't just be a, a job, right? Like you really yeah. have to stay in the know. You have to stay up to date. Um, but to be honest with you, Amy, I fell in love with it because of the patients. So once I was done with training, I started my own practice. I quickly realized that this field was very, very unique in medicine. And the relationship you form with patients is, mm -hmm. is really, really special. Like I have patients, you know, back from my first, second year of practice who still send me updates about their kiddos or, you know, I get Christmas cards yes. or whatnot. It's just it's a really, really special bond that I, I haven't found in, in any other specialty within medicine. So, you know, I, yeah. I joined it or I went into it for the science, but I, I really fell in love with it because of the patients. Yeah. You are literally creating life. And I yes. mean, how grateful are these people to you for, for giving them a life? I mean, that's not even like, yeah, it's, yeah, it's totally unique. I can only imagine getting pictures like every Christmas of this baby yeah. that you help bring into the world 10 years later. They're like going to be going to college before you know it. It's wild. It's wild. Yeah. And it definitely makes you feel a little old too, <laughs> but yeah. uh, no, no, but it's, it's super special. I love it. Yeah. So what are some of the things that, um, what are those mysteries? Because it does also astonish me. I think anyone in, in any, anything that we're an expert in, we just automatically think everybody knows that. Right. But right. even, you know, I've been out of nursing for 10 years and people still, you're a nurse, right? Can I ask you a question? <laughs> no, I don't want to see your rash, please. Yeah, no. but, yeah. but still the lack of education in, in so many different industries. So what are some of the things that people um, need to know about infertility? Yeah, so I, so this is really a passion of mine. I'm sort of, uh, you know, someone said, oh, you're kind of on like this crusade. I'm like, I, I really am because I think there's such a real basic lack of understanding. And, and part of that comes from just, you know, lack of teaching in society. Most of us learned about the birds and the bees from our friends or from television or- the Back of the bus. Right, back, yeah, back of the, there you go. Um, so really it's trying to- it's trying to discern what's normal and what's not, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and part of that too is for the medical community. So for, for the long time, painful periods were considered a normal part of, of women's health. And like, well, mm -hmm. yeah, painful periods, that's just part of being a woman, deal with it. Um, now we know that 
most women with endometriosis actually have seen up to five doctors before they actually get a diagnosis. So wow. understanding their own bodies and advocating and saying, Hey, you know, I'm having this pain every single month. It's debilitating. I'm calling out of work. My daughter can't go to school. I can't be intimate with my partner. Like those types of symptoms, that's not normal. Mm -hmm. Having to take a Tylenol on the first day, maybe, but really if it's something that's affecting your quality of life, it's something that should be addressed with your medical provider. Yeah. So I think that, you know, taking from that experience, I think we really have to do, take the time to educate the public about what's normal and what's not. So, so mm -hmm. classic or sort of typical things that I will talk about, number one, painful periods. If your periods are so painful that they're impacting quality of life, you're calling out of work, not normal. Yeah. Painful sex, particularly with deep thrusting or certain positions, also not normal, needs to be discussed, right? Um, and, and I think with intercourse, I think there are other components that go into that for women. Hormones, lubrication, where you're at in your period. There, there's a lot of other factors, but sex should not be painful. So if it is, yeah. we need to talk about it, right? Mm -hmm. um, opening up that conversation. Periods. So as a teenager, it might seem like it's great that you don't get a period, or maybe you get one a year and that's fantastic, but really that's not normal. If you are a young, healthy person of reproductive age, you know, female, then you really should be having a withdrawal bleed every month. Now, if you are on, you know, birth control pills or an IUD or some form of hormone suppression, that may vary. So definitely address that with your doctor. But for somebody who's not on any sort of medication, if you are taking, if, if you are young, healthy, you should be having a period every month. So not mm -hmm. having that is definitely not normal. And then the last thing I talk about is intercourse and, and when you are actually trying to have a baby. So let's say, you know, you just got married, you just got back from your honeymoon, you want to start trying, what are the things that you should be doing? And so number one is you want to get a sense of your ovulation. You want to get a sense of how long your periods are. That's as simple as jotting down that first day of full flow in a calendar every month, could be on your phone, could be on a paper calendar if you don't want to use a tracker, um, depending on the state you live in, but literally just trying to get an idea of when that first day of full flow is. And then based on that, saying, okay, my cycle length is typically 28 days from first day to first day, or it's typically 30 days, first day to first day, or whatever. So based on the cycle length, you can then estimate when you should be ovulating. Now, most textbooks will tell you around day 14, but that day 14 is predicated around a 28-day cycle. So if your cycles are shorter or longer, that day may shift for you. Mm -hmm. And using an ovulation predictor kit which is basically you buy it at any um, any local pharmacy or big box store. It's in the feminine hygiene section. And it's, you know, you just uh, pee on a stick and it's going to tell you yes or no. And that's really going to help you to identify when to specify timed intercourse. My recommendation is for people to time intercourse the day of the positive and the day after. If you're not getting regular periods, or let's say the cycle is ranging one month, it's 24 days, the next month, it's 38 days, the next month, et cetera, that's not normal. You want to see a doctor. If you're trying to track ovulation and you're not able to get a predictable, you know, positive with the ovulation predictor kit, you don't want to just sit around and wait. You definitely want to make sure you're talking to your physician. So if you're actively trying to get pregnant. So all of these things, I think it's important that people understand that, yes, there is this concept of 
you know, unprotected intercourse for a year or unprotected intercourse for whatnot. But really, there's so many other things that go into that in terms of what's normal and what's not. It's mm -hmm. a little bit of a long-winded answer, but hopefully that answers your question. No, that's that's so valuable for people because, you know, I, I didn't have this type of education. I just knew I was overweight and, you know, and we couldn't get pregnant. But right. there was so much more that went into it um, right. than that. So what is something that, um, how many pregnancies um, actually end in, um, in miscarriage? Like how many pregnancies don't actually oh, come to, yeah. you know, because I've, everybody thinks, well, the instant I'm pregnant, I'm pregnant. Well, not right. all pregnancies are meant, you know, it doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. What is the statistic right. on that? So the sort of the, if you look at all comers, right? So all reproductive age females in the US, that statistic is one in four. Mm. So one in four women has had a miscarriage in their lifetime, which is mm -hmm. crazy, right? Like the, that number is staggering because I think women don't talk about it. I think mm -hmm. there's a lot of guilt. There's a lot of shame associated with miscarriage still to this day. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's not something that's talked about public or openly a lot of times, but one in four. Now, that there is a caveat to that, that miscarriage risk really does vary by maternal age. So typically the numbers that we will quote is in women who are under the age of 35, their background risk for miscarriage is somewhere in the 10 to 15% range. So it's, it's pretty low. That means nine out of 10 women in that age group will go on to have a healthy pregnancy. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then as the woman gets older, we see that that risk of miscarriage begins to increase. So now by age 40, we are actually quoting a 40% risk of miscarriage if the patient gets pregnant. So wow. it's a huge jump in a very short time frame, And that sort of segues into the concept of ovarian aging. So what women need to understand is that the biological clock that we all talk about, unfortunately, is very real. So yeah. we are born with all the eggs we're going to have, and we lose those eggs progressively and continually as we age. Now, until about age 35, things remain fairly stable. There is some decline, but it's fairly stable. But once you get to be over the age of 35, there is a very real and a very progressive decline in the number of eggs that we're working with and in the quality of those eggs. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to get too technical. I'll stick with just quantity and quality. But that yeah. is part of the reason for why you see that jump in miscarriage risk with the increasing age. Mm -hmm. And now, I mean, when I was having my babies a long time ago, advanced maternal age uh, that was a certain number. Has that number come down over the years? What is that no, so we, considered so advanced now? maternal age is anybody who will be delivering over the age of 35. Okay. Yeah. So it's still the same, um, over the age of 35, the risk of complications with pregnancy, both to mom and baby, we do see that begin to increase, you know, significantly once the patient hits 40, 42, et cetera. Um, but over 35, we consider advanced maternal age. Mm -hmm. And how would someone know when it's time to seek um, IFV? So that's a great question. So or I think, IVF. yeah, yeah, IVF. Yes. <laughs> that's okay. IVF. That's a, I knew, I knew where you were going with it. So I think that is a, a two-part answer. And so the first question I would actually say is, when is it time to see a doctor? When is it time to get tested? And I think the answer to that question is really based on a few different things. So one can be age-based. So if you're under 35, you've been having unprotected intercourse for a year, it's time to get tested. 
If you're over 35 and you've been having unprotected intercourse for six months or longer, then it's time to get tested. If you have irregular cycles, very painful periods, or risk factors for infertility, so think of things like an STD in the past or a chronic disease like diabetes or lupus. So all of those things can contribute to infertility and you want to seek out help sooner rather than later. Yeah. So then the second question is when to actually start treatment. And so I think a lot of times people have this misconception. If I see a fertility specialist, that means I have to do IVF. And that right. couldn't be further for the from the truth. I think the reality is you see the, you see the fertility specialist, you have the consultation. I recommend testing to everybody because I think there's no harm, no foul there. At least you kind mm -hmm. of check your boxes that everything is okay. And then as a couple, you guys decide, okay, is IVF something we want to explore or not? Is this something that we are okay with financially, ethically, religiously, you know, emotionally, et cetera? Mm -hmm. And then number two, what is our timeline to that? So let's say we are okay with IVF. Is that something we want to jump into right now? Do we want to consider less aggressive fertility treatment first? Based on age, you know, IVF may be recommended sooner rather than later. So there are different variables to go into the treatment decision making. But what I would, I said, I guess my takeaway message for your audience would be that seeing a fertility specialist does not automatically mean IVF. Yeah. Yeah. There's other options. I know like I, it didn't get to that point for me. I was able to just take some hormone regulation and some other pills yeah. that weren't, they weren't super invasive into my life, but you know, it was, I needed to see someone to get to that point. Of knowing sure. what to do. Um, sure. There's so much guilt and shame. I think that people just, they, they depend on their regular OBGYN and their primary care provider that really just does not have that special knowledge that it takes to not only lead them through it medically, but emotionally. I mean, it's an extra three years in training. And it's an X, there's two more exams that we have to do. So we have our separate, we have a board certification to be OBGYNs. And then there's an additional board certification to be a fertility specialist. So mm -hmm. there is a lot more knowledge as far as the hormones, the hormone control, what's going on. And, and OBGYNs, as great as they are, they're covering 15 other things. When they do the visit, they're trying to cover so many, like we're honed in on one piece. We're honed in on your fertility. They're trying to cover all of your things, right? Because for most women, a general OBGYN is actually their primary care provider. So they're looking at, you know, your smoking, your weight, your, um, you know, your ovulate. I mean, so many other things. So mm -hmm. I definitely think that um, there's there's no harm in seeing a fertility specialist. And and if anything, you get reassured and you go back to, to your life, you know, and, and sort of that's great. And then if not, you find something and you work through that problem. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So many of our listeners are business owners. They're young entrepreneurs looking for, um, for a way out of corporate America or that mm -hmm. other situation. Yours is a little different. You know, you move from one practice to kind of a family practice and are a part sure. of that. What can you, what can you speak to as far as the business side of things and how that affects you personally, not just your your yeah, it's, it's so funny that you asked me that question. I literally said this to a patient yesterday, you know, that patient care is actually the only fun part of medicine. <laughs> yeah. Because taking care of patients, I love that. I could do that all day, every day, eyes closed, in my sleep, on weekends. Like I do not yep. consider it a job. I love, I'm a people person. I love working with people. I love, truly love what I do. 
The business side of medicine, very, very different story, right? Um, And I'm a little bit unique with regards to my specialty because there it's limited insurance coverage. So I'm not dealing with a full insurance practice like a typical medical practice would. Mm -hmm. I would say that most of my patients, particularly once they get into treatment, the vast majority of them are Mm self-pay. And the, the biggest lessons that I have taken away from the business side of things, which you don't get in training, by the way. No, so no. I, my business training really started year one of my practice eight years ago. Mm-hmm. So, um, so really from the business side, I think the big takeaways are number one, that you cannot have your head in the sand. You cannot say, well, I'm the idea person, or I'm going to just focus on what I do best and not look at the numbers. Cause mm-hmm. if you don't look at the numbers, nobody else is. You can have the best biller, you can have the best accountant, you can have the best whatever, but you need to know your numbers. So I think Mm -hmm. that would be the biggest takeaway is you can't have your head in the sand. I think the second biggest takeaway is leadership above all. If you have good leadership, if you have good work culture, I think that is going to trump everything. And I think a lot of medical practice, well, a lot of businesses, frankly, saw that with COVID. Um, you know, and you would think during COVID doctors couldn't have been busier. Everybody was seeing a doctor. There was actually a lot of medical practices that closed because financially Mm -hmm. they just could not stay afloat. And so really from a, from a business standpoint, I think leadership above all the culture, the tone that you set, um, are your employees happy and, and, you know, just focusing on if you don't have leadership there, it's like, there's no foundation to the business and and Mm -hmm. really it's, how are you going to carry that um, that business forward? So I think that's the second thing. And I think the third thing really is stick to your vision. I think that it's really easy. Um, and, and again, um, my business mentor, and I'll mention her here, uh, Dr. Neka Unekachu, she's a board certified pediatrician, but has been a serial entrepreneur now for many years and um, somebody that I aspire to sort of model after. And she has, she talks about sort of the squirrelitis where, you know, you're, you have this idea and then you're like, well, actually this idea could be really good. And actually if we incorporated that could be really good. And you, in doing that, you sort of lose focus of what the primary objective is or what the primary yeah. should be. Um, yeah. And so really having that focus and that clarity of message and of audience, um, I think is super, super important and will carry the business. And the example she always gives is Beyonce. So she says, you know, Beyonce today, she does Pepsi, she does Adidas, she does, you know, whatever, but Beyonce became Beyonce with singing. So she became Beyonce. And once she broke the wall of obscurity, she's now acting, she's now, you know, doing these marketing things or whatnot. So I think really, really having that focus and that clarity on message and on audience um, Mm -hmm. and trying to avoid the squirrelitis, I think will, will help um, you know, the, the small business owner and the serial entrepreneur. So hopefully that was a helpful. Mm-hmm. No, I love that because we call that in marketing, we call that shiny object syndrome because yes. somebody always has anything, but I love the squirrelitis. I think I'm going to switch yeah. to that, <laughs> but something that I noticed coming from the medical field. Now I worked in uh, cardiothoracic surgery. So I was in the OR very, very far removed, but so many of the physicians and surgeons I worked with, um, you know, 
the doctors I know, they get into practice because they want autonomy. They just want to serve their patients. That's all they want to do, like you said, but then they get roped into these huge hospital systems because of that support, the marketing. They're, they're tricked into the idea that they can attract their own patients, but I love that you said knowing your messaging, your marketing, how to know your numbers, knowing that business side of it. Um, I really feel like so many of our medical schools are setting up positions for failure for that autonomy that they're really seeking, you know, and then, I mean, not even to mention the medical malpractice insurance and how expensive our society has made it for someone to make it on their own. But, um, what do you and say I, to that? Mention, well, and I will say, I'll mention two other things to that same note. Um, one is that, you know, for those that don't know, CMS um, cut reimbursement to physicians by 10% this year. And typically when they do that, private insurers follow. And yet we know inflation is up at least 8%, which means employees cost more, um, materials cost more, rent costs more. So to keep the lights on and keep things running is eight to 10% higher and yet reimbursement cut by 10%. So yes. when you look at medicine and you look at the rate of burnout and the rate of physician suicide, and I hate to talk on such a morbid topic, but it is a reality nah, bring it are at all Truth. yeah i mean burnout it, p, physicians are leaving medicine at a rate never before seen in the history of the field and the burnout is real the burnout happens for two reasons one is what you mentioned lack of autonomy because at the end of the day, if you don't have control of your schedule, if you don't have control over how many patients you see or how many hours you work, that's going to drive burnout. You don't have a say. And number two is the cut in reimbursement. Everyone thinks that doctors have this sort of life of luxury and whatnot, but you have to remember that the vast majority of physicians are starting out with multiple six-figure debt from yes. undergrad post-grad, and then residency training where they're really not able to pay back their loans. So most doctors are starting with 200, 300, I've heard up to 500K in student yes. debt. And so really, yes, you, ha you have the six-figure income to that you're now joining, but you have this huge elephant on your back that you're trying to pay off before you can even start living. So I think there's a, a big misconception. And when you look at you know, the payer distribution in the healthcare system. Yeah. And what I mean by that is when a patient pays $100, how, you know, where does that get distributed in terms of hospital administration, the insurance company, uh, you know, et cetera. And then eventually the physician, the physician actually makes up a really, really small piece of that pie. Um, yes. And yet somehow I think that they are the easiest ones to sort of like slice away from. Um, mm -hmm. So you got me, you got me a little bit of a soapbox here, but, but it's, I love it's it. Real. But, the burnout is real. Um, I like to think I'm part of a small minority that are trying to change that tide. I really do believe that physicians need to take back ownership of medicine. And if we mm -hmm. can do that, I think it's honestly going to be better for patients um, and better for doctors. Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, through and through, I can agree with you more. Um, I've seen such a mass exodus of primary care physicians going to that direct care, that direct yep. primary care subscription yep. type service. They're just cutting out yep. the, the insurance piece yep. of it so that yep. they can get that autonomy. Um, yeah. When I went from working, I worked for a major hospital corporation to a physician owned hospital system. Yep completely different picture from a nurse's yeah. perspective and a patient perspective. I mean, it, the, the goals are just different yep. and you could feel it. It was palpable. The care yeah. was palpable. The yeah. nurse patient ratio was much lower and they invested into 
that end user, the client, which is what really matters. Yeah. And if you think about it, like most doctors, like there are, there are better ways to make money, right? Like there are easier ways, shorter <laughs> so ways. So many easier ways. To start your earning potential a lot sooner. So most doctors who have done, you know, four years of undergrad, four years of postgrad, at least four years of residency, and then they did a fellowship and then board certificate, like they do that because they want to help people, right? Most mm -hmm. of us went into medicine because we want to take care of patients and we want to help people. We also want to be able to make a living doing it. So it's not like we're martyrs, but, but most of us went into it to help people. And so I think when you see that, and, and I love your comparison that you describe, you know, where really you can tell the palpable difference when the doctors are able to own it and to control it. And you see that invested, reinvested into the staff and into the patients. Mm -hmm. It makes all the difference. Um, yeah. I can't believe this time is already running so short. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. So Carolina is on a mission to educate people, not just women, people yeah. about fertility and about women's need. What else do you have a burning desire to say? Because I know there's probably something in there that I maybe haven't asked the question about. No, that's okay. So I think the, the one last thing that I would say, okay, two last things. <laughs> the one last Hang thing on. that I would say is, you know, infertility affects one in eight couples here in the US. And I think that a lot of people don't know that statistic. That is the same as the breast cancer statistics. And wow. women have a whole, or I should say, breast cancer has a whole month dedicated to awareness, the NFL, the NBA, everybody goes pink in October. And that's mm -hmm. wonderful. And we should do that. But I want to just raise a voice and sort of put out the message that infertility is just as common. And I don't think that it's talked about enough. So I think understanding just how common it is, if you think about your circle of friends, if there are eight of you, at least one of you has probably suffered from infertility. So that yes. is one message I would like to take home. And then the second message is to really be a self-advocate. I think if you have the right doctor-patient relationship, being able to ask those questions and being able to, hey, I heard this, what do you think about that? Um, and really trying to be a self-advocate in your healthcare, I think is a huge benefit um, mm -hmm. to you navigating the healthcare system, but also to the doctor. It makes the visit a lot more productive when the patient comes with questions, comes with that knowledge, comes with that, that uh, curiosity. A hundred percent. And something else I'd like you to speak to a little bit, just having dealt with infertility myself, um, and then actually had, um, a miscarriage with a, with a, um, device later on got pregnant and miscarried with yep. an IUD out yep. of the blue randomly. Um, what about people who have never dealt with that, but they have friends or family who do. There Ooh, are some helpful that. things that you yes. can say, and there are yep. some things that you can just take a freaking hike over there and say to yourself, because there are helpful things that people think they're being helpful, but are so hurtful. So speak yeah. to that piece of so it. So I, I love that question. Um, so number one, I'll just mention Resolve, um, resolve.org. They are a nonprofit organization. Mm -hmm. They are um, out and about specifically for the infertility community. And wow. they have great resources on their website and social media, both for the infertility community, as well as people who want to support somebody with infertility. Mm -hmm. So I, I'll just mention them here. And then as far as what to say and what not to say, the, the, the biggest thing is most people understand that their loved one is trying to be supportive, but don't understand how damaging it can be. Mm -hmm. And so the whole just relax, take a vacation, you can take my kids, um, you know, uh, maybe it's not meant to be, just get a dot. I mean, you name it, I've heard it. And it's, it's horrible. It's extremely triggering. It's extreme, you know, it just adds to the grief that the patient or the couple is already experiencing. Mm -hmm. So really 
It's what can I do? How can I be there? How can I be present? What do you need from me? Mm-hmm. And if they're talking, listen, they don't need advice. They don't mm-hmm. need opinions. They don't need, oh, my sister down the street or my neighbor or whatever, you know, they just mm-hmm. need somebody that's going to hold their hand and be there for them in the process. And you yeah. can ask them, what do you need? Right. And so um, some scenarios, for example, you know, if you are a really good friend and, you know, you have that relationship, um, if at some point, I know I'm going to start trying, if at some point I become pregnant, do you want to know? Do you want me to call? Do you want me to text? And I think just, you know, having, if you're close enough to be able to have that discussion, I think that's wonderful because you're really just asking. Some people don't share pregnancy news because they, they don't want to hurt the person, but then the person feels left out. Like why, you know, we're such good friends. Why wouldn't you share something that's such a good positive thing in your life with me? So, um, really being able to have that connection. And if you don't know the person well enough, shut your mouth, (laughs) right? (laughs) You don't have that relationship. Just don't say anything, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, and I think that is the best advice I can give. That's excellent advice. Yeah. All those things that people just say off the cuff, you can have my kids or you can adopt. Those are so hurtful. And I know that they don't mean to be hurtful. They're just trying to so desperately to support and just don't know how. So thank you for shining a light on that for for the audience. Um, Tell us how people can follow you. Where can they find you? Just I'm sure you're putting out tips and advice all the time. But if they're in the Fresno area, how can they connect with you um, and get treatment as well? Sure. Yeah. So I am um, online. So I have a YouTube channel. I am very active on Instagram. I also have that link to Facebook and LinkedIn, all of them, all channels, Dr. Carolina Sweldo. So it's very easy. Very easy. So I am on there online. I do not give medical advice. I give tons and tons of educational information because that is my mission. Um, As far as being in this geographic location, as long as you're in the state of California, I can serve you. Um, You can call our office. Area code is 559-299-7700. Again, 299-7700. Or you can find us online as well at Women's Specialty and Fertility Center. Thank you so much. And that is Caroline, Carolina, spelt like Carolina. Yep, Sueldo, right. S-U-E-L-D-O. So Dr. Carolina Sueldo, go find her on Instagram, hit her up, start following her. And if you're in the Fresno area or in California at all, and you need help with fertility or think you might need help with fertility, make an appointment, go see this wonderful person. She is an advocate for you. And it sounds like she will do everything within her power to educate you and move you forward. Thank you so much for being my guest and thank you for being a queen who leads. Yeah, no, that was awesome. I really, really enjoyed this podcast interview. So thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.